0: This is Tried and True, the Essay Podcast. I'm Paul Zakrzewski. T.S. Eliot's masterpiece, The Four Quartets, was a series of poems written between the late 1930s and early 40s.
1: It's a poem about England and about Englishness. But curiously, Eliot also tells us that the work is inspired by the music of Beethoven.
0: That's akanksha Vierkar Gates a British literary scholar and a senior lecturer at the University of Brighton in the UK.
1: And a couple of years ago, I stumbled on something which was both surprising and compelling.
0: When Four Quartets was published as a collection in 1943, it was the height of World War II. You wouldn't really expect a great English poet to be enthusiastic about a German composer. But the poems in Four Quartets are filled with Eliot's reverence for both Beethoven and Wagner. Why should he do this? And how did Eliot's ideas about cultural identity and patriotism allow him to build these sorts of bridges? What would he make of the current nationalist moment, like Brexit? Akangsha Yates went in search of answers. She's joined by Christopher Ricks, Francis Dickey, and John Zeros Cooper. Cooper, who's a former professor of English at the University of British Columbia, is the first voice you'll hear.
2: Very recently, when I was living in uh, uh, Nailsworth, which is a, a small town in, or a small village, actually, in uh, the Stroud area of Gloucestershire, it's about the time of the Brexit campaign. The first thought I had is as I was walking down the street and thinking about, wow, the Britain is going to get out of the EU, what would Elliot think of that? <laughs> and my, my thought was, he'd really be against it, because <laughs> uh, he was a really ardent European. So I started thinking about that more. And I became very conscious of, uh, of the campaign for leaving the EU. And one aspect of British life that I'd never actually noticed all the many times that I've been in England, which is the whole question of national identity. It's like all of a sudden that seemed to be more important than any other issue. And I went back and started rereading the, the Four Quartets. I just noticed, noticed for the first time, apart from all the stuff about music and apart from all the spiritual things that are there part of Eliot's continuing spiritual development, there were issues of national identity in the, in the poem as well, which I found very interesting, which I'd never noticed before, actually, until Brexit. On top of that, a whole series of things started uh, happening in Britain a movie about Dunkirk, a play about the Blitz in the West End. Oh, that moment in time when Britain left Europe in 1940 suddenly came back to haunt the British. <laughs> all of that work really seems to me to be about national identity. Dunkirk really stuck with me, because, first of all, because of the film and how important it was for people to think of that moment in time, actually, not only as a defeat, but also as a great triumph. And then I realized that that was a theme actually in Four Quartets as well, because Four Quartets were written, the last three were written about the time of Dunkirk and the Blitz, when England was going through its direst moment. There are other places which also are the world's end,
3: some at the sea jaws or over a dark lake in a desert or a city, but this is the nearest in place and
2: time now and in England. And apart from the fact that the, that the poem attempted to raise the spirit of, of intellectuals, it also had a lot to say about uh, the nation, about identity, and so on. But the curious thing, to get back to music, is that it was based on a German quartet by Beethoven, the A minor quartet. And, and that, that I found really very intriguing.
4: that in 19th century America, Beethoven reigned supreme
1: uh,
4: over musical
1: tastes. Francis Dickey is a professor of English at the University of Missouri and president of the International T.S. Eliot Society.
4: St. Louis was settled by German immigrants, many of them fleeing the revolutions of 1848. And they came to St. Louis and they brought their music with them. At the turn of the century, St. Louis had over 800 music teachers, most of them German. And St. Louis had the second symphony orchestra in the United States, founded by a German musician, Joseph Otten. Most of the symphony was comprised of German players. In the United States, symphony orchestras were founded to play Beethoven. Uh, so, Eliot grew up listening to Beethoven played by the St. Louis Symphony. They played and sang at his church, where he went every Sunday, the church that was founded by his grandfather. So, Beethoven was a, a, a very important part of the formation of his musical taste. And, you know, on, on Elliot Street, there were Irish immigrants, there were German immigrants, there were Swiss immigrants, there were former slaves, Um, and I've looked at the census records for his block, and there were numerous musicians. It's a hot climate. People leave their windows and doors open, and you can hear each people's music. So for him, the experience of listening to music was, that was community, in a way that maybe it's not for us, because we tend to listen to music more privately.
5: 28th of March, 1931. Eliot in a letter to Stephen Spender. I am delighted to hear you have been at the late Beethoven. I have the A minor quartet on the gramophone and find it quite inexhaustible to study. There is a sort of heavenly, or at least more than human, gaiety about some of his later things which one imagines might come to oneself as the fruit of reconciliation and relief after immense suffering— I should like to get something of that into verse once before I die.
2: In the letter to, to Spender, what he's talking about there is suffering, uh, and that Beethoven wrote the, uh, the opus 132, the A minor quartet, after a, after a, a severe illness, uh, when he'd almost died. And in the letter, Eliot talks about um, how, as the music unfolds, it becomes more serene. And it's a kind of relief. I think he's, is, is the word he uses in the letter. Relief and um, reconciliation, or something. The quartet ends on a on a very serene and uh, a beautiful uh, uh, plateau, having overcome suffering. And Eliot ends the letter to Spender by saying that he wishes that he could write something in words that create the same, the same feeling, the same idea of uh, a, a kind of. Redemption, but not, not in a religious sense, just overcoming suffering, right?
1: When Eliot sits down to write four quartets in the late 30s, the question of German music is very much a political one. From 1934, under Hitler, German radio was airing a Beethoven symphony each night. But at the same time, in England and in America, Beethoven was increasingly becoming an anti-Nazi symbol. In fact, by 1941, the BBC started airing Beethoven's fifth at the start of all of its wartime broadcast to the continent. And the famous phrase of fate, knocking at the door, became the sonic symbol of the V for victory campaign. So for Eliot too, in his poem, Beethoven suggests resistance and a kind of redemption. And the poem works to a sort of series of carefully crafted echoes,
5: Burnt Norton One Other echoes inhabit the garden. Shall we follow? Quick, said the bird, find them, find them, round the corner. Through the first gate, into our first world. Shall we follow the deception of the thrush? Into our first world. There they were, dignified, invisible, moving without pressure, over the dead leaves In the autumn heat, through the vibrant air, and the bird called, in response to the unheard music hidden in the shrubbery.
1: Through four quartets, Eliot gives us what he describes as hints and guesses. Eliot himself was a great reader of detective fiction, and his poetry as well often works in this way. So the first hint is here, at the very opening of Burnt Norton when Eliot describes the birdsong in the garden. Because embedded here is a kind of playful, teasing echo of Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, with its very famous depiction of birdsong, the sounds of a stream, rustling leaves and the wind. And all of these sounds actually open Eliot's four quartets and lead us into the poem. Christopher Ricks is a well-known literary critic and former professor of poetry at the University of Oxford.
3: Um, I wrote about the word between because of the odd way in which it either means things are joined or things are separated, or it means both, and the belief over the century that you're always between wars. Right from 1914 on... And even perhaps earlier than that, because of other wars, Eliot is thinking you're always between wars.
5: 1919, Tradition and the Individual Talent The poet must be quite aware of the obvious fact that art never improves, but that the material of art is never quite the same. He must be aware that the mind of Europe, the mind of his own country, a mind which he learns in time to be much more important than his own private mind, is a mind which changes, and that this change is a development which abandons nothing en route, which does not superannuate either Shakespeare or Homer or the rock drawing of the Magdalenian draftsman.
2: The the Mind of Europe essay, uh, Tradition and the Individual Talent, um, 1919, um, very early on in his career. Eliot was drawn to Europe because it was a more integrated, he felt from America that it was a more integrated culture. But when, when he was there, he began to realize slowly over the, over the next few decades that, in fact, it's much more complicated than just simply a concept that everyone carries around in their minds, right? It really has to do with a whole series of material engagements with culture, right? That's how cultures live. They don't live in the mind. They live in the, in the everyday, in what people do, how they relate to each other, what they share. And that's, I think, what, what we see Later in his in his life is the materialization, if, they, if I could use that term, right, of, of the concept. How do we make it real? Yes, it's uh, you know, the mind of Europe, but the mind is just what is you know, it's it's just a film, really. But it's the material connections that we have. That's what what unifies a culture, right? And that's what I think he he was so upset about as time went on as he began to see, especially the late 20s and then all through the 1930s, the whole thing beginning to disintegrate. It was a
3: strange and very telling thing that when Eliot took the job at Lloyd's Bank, the work that came particularly to him had to do with the Treaty of Versailles and questions of reparation and questions, of course, of John Maynard Keynes. And Eliot writes to his mother, telling her that she must read the economic consequences of the peace. And he points out to her that in Germany, where he relatively briefly is, they're quite sure uh, that the Treaty of Versailles is a disaster and is going to lead to the coming war. And, of course, it's Faber and Faber as a publishing house who published a translation from the German, from the great military leader, Ludendorff, the German leader in the Great War, The Coming War. And that book, The Coming War, furnishes ten lines or so in triumphal March, lines in the 30s, which, for me, had not had a military dimension Suddenly get one if you know enough about the coming war in Ludendorff and military
5: history. Triumphal March 1931. Stone, bronze, stone, steel, stone, oak leaves, horses' heels over the paving, and the flags, and the trumpets, and so many eagles. What comes first? Can you see? Tell us. It is 5,800,000 rifles and carbines, 102,000 machine guns, 28,000 trench mortars, 53,000 field and heavy guns. I cannot tell how many projectiles, mines and fuses... 13,000 aeroplanes, 24,000 aeroplane engines, 50,000 ammunition wagons, now 55,000 army wagons, 11,000 field kitchens, 1,150 field bakeries. What a time that took. Will it be he now? Look, there he is now. Look, there is no interrogation in his eyes or in the hands. Quiet over the horse's neck and the eyes watchful, waiting, perceiving, indifferent. Oh, hidden under the dove's wing, hidden in the turtle's breast, under the palm tree at noon, under the running water, at the still point of the turning world.
1: Eliot's description of the still point of the turning world is probably the most famous line from all of his work. It appears first in Triumphal March, which is clearly concerned with fascism and war, and then later in four quartets. What we don't often notice, though, is that both poems are in fact inspired by Beethoven. And I think Eliot's elliptical, very famous image has something to do with the reconciliation he imagines can be brought about through music. And this is why he turns to Beethoven, to suggest those ideas of freedom and transcendence That Beethoven is associated with in the 19th century. And Beethoven becomes Eliot's model of the good European, which is something he writes about in 1928. And reading four quartets in this way, the poem really looks quite different. It suggests something entirely contrary to what has often been thought about Eliot that he is unmoved or even a bit irresponsible when it comes to actually engaging with the reality of war.
5: Burnt Norton II Garlic and sapphires in the mud clot the bedded axle tree. The trilling wire in the blood sings below inveterate scars appeasing long-forgotten wars. The dance along the artery, the circulation of the lymph are figured in the drift of stars, ascend to summer in the tree, we move above the moving tree in light upon the figured leaf and here upon the sodden floor below the boarhound and the boar pursue their pattern as before but reconciled among the stars at the still point of the turning world.
2: Beautiful passage. There is on earth a kind of pattern of life which is connected to the movement of the heavens. And the, and the, only, the only material aesthetic that, that could actually capture this is music. I think that's, that's what he's saying, the dance and music. The stars and then what's below the stars and even below that, right? The sodden floor and the stars. <laughs> I mean, the connection is, uh, is made via a kind of music, but also the dance. I think that's important, Uh, that's important in this uh, as well. I think that's what unifies the four quartets is the underlying musical elements in it. He returns to them again and again.
1: passage gives us a key to the whole poem, because it directly opposes these two ideas of music and conflict. On the one hand is the blood, scars, wires, but on the other, the sound of music which rises up above this really quite strange picture of the German boarhound and the boar. Again, I think, another veiled reference to German militarism. And as this music ascends above the conflict on earth, and Eliot uses the German word Erhebung. I think we might even hear an echo of Beethoven's Ode to Joy, with music bringing reconciliation above the stars.
4: As he floats up above these feelings of patriotism and anxiety, I think he's trying to look towards a future in which these shared values, uh, and music is one of them, cultural values, democratic values shared history, shared environment, that all of these uh, factors can hopefully allow in the future a more unified Europe and, and world. And, and maybe that's part of the meaning of the abstractions of the poem, that they, they try to help us rise up out of our own individual point of view and, and position, our embeddedness in our circumstances.
5: Norton, too, but reconciled among the stars at the still point of the turning world. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long, for that is to place it in time the inner freedom from the practical desire, the release from action and suffering, release from the inner and the outer compulsion, yet surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light still and moving. So in in Little
4: Getting Three, Eliot writes, this is the use of memory for liberation, not less of love, but expanding of love beyond desire, and so liberation from the future as well as the past. Thus, love of a country begins as attachment to our own field of action and comes to find that action of little importance, though never indifferent. History may be servitude. History may be freedom. In this passage, he's thinking about his own attachment to England, one that he chose as opposed to his nationality as an American, which was given to him. So, of course, patriotism meant something more, I think, to him than it does, perhaps, to one who hasn't chosen a particular nation to to be loyal to. You know, he goes on to say, love of country, one comes to find that action of little importance, though never indifferent, almost as if he's floating up above his own feelings of anxiety for England, and, as well as, as loyalty and attachment, and trying to see all of Europe from kind of bird's eye perspective. Um, and even, I think, not just Europe, but he's an American, so he's he can't not think about America and, and they're part of the Allied effort here.
3: The key thought, perhaps, or a key thought in Little Gidding is Love of a country begins as attachment to our own field of action and comes to find that action of little importance, though never indifferent. And the word indifferent is a very, very important word to Eliot. It turns up with massive weight and exactitude in Triumphal March. Uh, The whole world of a principled indifference as against not caring about things and so on. So they're very, very important politically and morally and spiritually for Eliot. never indifferent. With field being partly a perfectly ordinary English field, but the field is a battlefield as well as a part of it. It's also the cliché field of action. Uh, it then doesn't say love of a country begins as attachment to our own field of action and comes to find that field a little important. No, it comes to find that action, The field remains important. You'll never care about a country unless you care about a a bit of it, a particular fear of it.
2: The debacle at Dunkirk, which was both a defeat and and a victory, an odd kind of victory, right? I think it's uh, is, is somewhere in the background of some of this, of this part of Dry Salvages, when he uh, talks about the sea, the, the murmuring shell of time and not in any language. Fare forward, you who think you are voyaging. You are not those who saw the harbor receding or those who will disembark here between the hither and further shore. And then he says, uh, he concludes that by, by talking about, again, fair forward. But, O voyagers, O seamen, you who come to port, and you whose bodies will suffer the trial and judgment of the sea, or whatever event, this is your real destination, so Krishna as when he admonished Arjuna in the field of battle. Not farewell, but fair forward, voyagers, right? Which I see that as a renunciation of a kind, but it's, it's, it's also about triumph and defeat, it doesn't matter whether you lose or win. <laughs> it's how you behave. It's like where you go from here. You know, it's how you fare forward, right? Uh, and I thought that, that when I began to see Dunkirk as somehow in, in, you know, involved with the poem, that ma- made a lot of sense to me that if you were reading this in June, July of 1940, you might think, yeah, right, yeah. This is what happened to us. <laughs> right.
4: Also pray for those who were in ships and ended their voyage on the sand, in the sea's lips or in the dark throat, which will not reject them or wherever cannot reach them the sound of the sea bell's perpetual angelus. That's certainly a place where I see Elliot thinking about all the victims of the naval battles of World War II.
3: One would like, and not just sort of tactically, uh, to find Eliot magnanimous. Uh, A lot of the time there's no difficulty in finding him magnanimous. And there was a kind of magnanimity in the word erhevo. um, A kind of magnanimity. On the other hand, the war hasn't yet started in 1936. And for some people, Eliot's relations to... Germanness, especially when it comes to expressing any sustained attention towards the Holocaust, is shocking. In
1: 1931, there were only two or three recordings available of Beethoven's A minor quartet, and it's likely that Eliot was listening to the Columbia recording of the Lehner quartet. They were a Hungarian Jewish group and one of the first to emigrate to America with the rise of the Nazis in Germany. And in 1933, when Eliot himself is in America, Fert Wengler's very famous letter to Goebbels is published in the New York Times, suggesting that the government continue to allow Jewish artists to appear in Germany. So even if the war had not yet started when Eliot begins writing four quartets, The question of music and race is already hugely pressing. And I think that Eliot, being the historical poet that he was, simply could not have been blind to the historical moment.
5: Had they deceived us, or deceived themselves, the quiet-voiced elders bequeathing us merely a receipt for deceit, the serenity only a deliberate habitude. The wisdom only the knowledge of dead secrets useless in the darkness into which they peered or from which they turned their eyes. East Coker 3 Oh dark, 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 they all go into the dark. The vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant. The captains, merchant bankers, eminent men of letters, the generous patrons of art, the statesmen and the rulers, distinguished civil servants, chairmen of many committees, industrial lords and petty contractors, all go into the dark, and dark the sun and moon, and the almanac de Gotha, and the Stock Exchange Gazette, the directory of directors, and cold the sense and lost the motive of action, and we all go with them into the silent funeral. But the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing. Whisper of running streams and winter lightning.
2: in Germany and then later you know, Hitler and so on, they had appropriated some of these figures from their, their, their history and made them do tricks that, they're, <laughs> that they never meant to do, right? Because of the war, because of the loudness, the noise of war drowns out someone who might, that kind of review by Eliot, who's trying to redeem, you know, Wagner and Nietzsche from uh, the uses they're being put to by uh, militarists.
4: The idea I've been kind of trying to work around with Eliot is how when he hears music, he feels nostalgia. But it's nostalgia for a place in which music was not nationalistic. Music did not have a kind of... It was not rooted in one nation. (laughs) It was very cosmopolitan, very international, comprised of so many different threads. Uh, And music was so much more alive before we all listened to recordings that you didn't hear music unless someone was playing it for you. So you were very conscious of who that music was coming from.
2: In in a kind of very sly way, he kind of moves through Beethoven into, into reminding us that yes, there's an aberration here, there's a breakdown, but it can be healed. And then he begins the healing later, uh, as when the war ends. But uh, yes, it is, it is an attempt to reunify a European culture which he sees fracturing. He had seen it at the, in the late 30s, falling apart. He ends the Criterion, his, his magazine, his periodical, by saying that he has to close it because he sees the mind of Europe closing down. Right? I think that's, he says something like that in the last editorial. And I, I know he was, uh, he was uh, in a very depressed mood after Munich. Munich especially was a, was a particularly bad moment.
3: The whole earth is our hospital, endowed by the ruined millionaire, wherein, if we do well, we shall, we shall die, die of, of, the of the absolute,
5: absolute paternal, paternal care that will not leave us, but prevents us everywhere. The chill ascends from feet to knees. The fever sings in mental wires. If to be warmed, then I must freeze and quake in frigid purgatorial fires of which the flame is roses and the smoke is briars.
2: In Four Quartets, I think he wants to remind people that we're still one culture, right? This is one of the reasons I think that he would be so upset if if he were alive now about Brexit, right? (laughs) Because it is, Britain is part of Europe, always has been, always will be. It is an island and it is separate and, and it has its own traditions. It isn't until uh, notes uh, towards definition of culture that he begins to talk about you know, regionalism and, and, and unity. Th- those are important texts, actually, for him. And we don't appreciate enough about Eliot how he became, uh, his, his idea of Europe, which began as a kind of idealist thing when he talked about the mind of Europe. Later on, he talked about in uh, not only in notes, but in the talks he gave to the Germans after the war, after they'd been defeated trying to recruit them back into the, the homeland, right, into the, the wider homeland, by arguing that, um, that Europe uh, has one culture, and it's based, as he says, on, on the Greeks, on the Romans, and on the Jews, right? And, and, and I think the, the emphasis or the mention of the Jews at the end in many ways is a, is a confession on his part about the anti-Semitism that he's always been accused of, that he, that he, that he now includes... ...the uh, Judaism as one of the founding pillars of Western
1: civilization. The idea of music is perhaps also an acknowledgement... ...and an apology for Eliot... ...for things which he has misconstrued in the past... ...including his anti-Semitic views. And I think this is part of the meaning of Beethoven for Eliot... At this particular moment in time.
3: And last, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been, the shame of motives late revealed, and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue.
0: You've been listening to a special episode of Tried and True, the Essay podcast. We're a co-production between Essay, the Journal of Nonfiction Studies, and the Missouri Audio Project. We're sincerely grateful to Akanksha Virkar Yates, the force behind Eliot and Beethoven. This documentary was made possible through funds provided by the University of Brighton Rising Stars Award. Thanks also to Francis Diggy for bringing this documentary to our attention. We're also really grateful to the interviewees, John Zeros Cooper, Francis Dickey, and Christopher Ricks for their participation. Thanks, too, to Alan Hall at Falling Tree Productions and to Rachel Shelley for her arresting readings of Eliot's poetry and prose. To find out more about Essay, visit EssayJournal.com or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. See you next time.
5: An M.A.P. production based in Columbia, Missouri, supported by KBIA.